thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Forget Shark Week. Here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, it's Bomber Month. Every Monday from December 2nd to the 23rd, we'll feature a different American bomber. From the venerable World War II era Boeing B-17 Flying Fortress to the cutting edge Northrop Grumman B-2 Spirit. Never mind the announcements. Listener questions can wait. Let's get straight to the bombers with your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot Vincent Aiello. All right, Bomber Month continues, and today we're talking the B-1 Lancer, better known as the Bone. Here to help us do that is retired United States Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Chris Wachter. What's up, Wacky? Hey, how's it going, uh, Jello? It's going great, man. How are you doing? It's a fine, cool day in D.C., but things are well. <laughs> All right, dude. Well, you know the drill. We're in the middle of Bomber Month, and uh, we're having a good time with that, learning about the B-17, B-52. After you will be the B-2. But first, let's learn all about you. Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? And what are you doing now? Oh, absolutely. So I was born in uh, Pasadena, California. Grew up in that area. My folks still live in Huntington Beach. Uh, I went to the Air Force Academy, graduated in uh, 1997, and uh, was able to attend pilot training. I went to a uh, thing that uh, I don't know if they're really doing as much anymore called Joint Specialized Undergraduate Pilot Training. So I actually flew T-34s at VT-3 with the Navy to start out. Ah. And then uh, went to uh, Vance Air Force Base in Oklahoma for T-38s. And at that time in my drop, there were five active duty guys. There were two fighters, two FAPES, and a B-1. I chose the B-1. I thought it was a sexy looking aircraft, fast, powerful aircraft. And uh, I didn't want to stay in Oklahoma any longer. And so uh, that's what led me to the B-1. My first assignment okay. was up in uh, Ellsworth Air Force Base, South Dakota. Great assignment. During that time, 9-11 uh, happened. Did not get to go deploy. At that point, I did some jet swaps, but about uh, a year and a half later, our squadron up there merged with the 34th Bomb Squadron, one of the Doolittle Raider squadrons, and we were picked to deploy for the start of Iraqi Freedom. I flew night one in Iraqi Freedom. I was the aircraft commander on what we call the Saddam strike. There was a strike there on 7 April 2003 where we thought we might have gotten Saddam in, in downtown Baghdad in the Mansur district. Turns out he walked out of the building about five minutes prior to our JDAMs hitting. After that, I went to weapons school, then became the wing weapons officer at Dias Air Force Base, and then went back to instruct at the WIC for a couple years. After that, the Air Force determined I needed to get smart, so they sent me to Army Command and General Staff College for a year, and then a year at the Air Force's School of Advanced Air and Space Studies. My payback for that was to go to the Pentagon for a couple years, where I was the chief of a regular warfare strategy. Kind of an interesting role for a bomber guy, but learned okay. a lot there. And then I went back to the B-1. I was the DO or the director of operations for two B-1 squadrons. And then in 2014, I deployed for a year to be the deputy group commander for all the flying operations out of uh, Al-Yadid in Qatar. And around that time frame, if you remember, that's when we started up against uh, ISIS flying mm -hmm. into Iraq and Syria. So I got a fair amount of doing that as well. Uh, after that, I had to go non-flying again, so I went to uh, SHAPE, which is the Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe for NATO in Belgium, and was on the Middle East Task Force trying to get uh, NATO involved with the coalition to defeat ISIS. Okay. After that, I had hit my 20 years of active duty. I transitioned over to the reserves, where I was the director of operations for the only B-1 reserve squadron for two years. And this past June, I retired with 22 years of full service uh, under my belt, and I currently fly for the world's largest airline. Wow, that's awesome, man. That's quite the pedigree, and uh, thanks for taking the time to share your expertise with us. Were you at Ellsworth when, uh, is that where we first met? I used to go out there and give a Navy capabilities brief when I was at Top Gun. I don't think so. If you're at Top Gun, we probably have some mutual friends, um, Tank Taylor, Al Hitcher, Geist. Mm. Uh, they instructed out there for a bit, but no, I don't think we ever crossed paths up there. Okay. Thought I'd had at one point a communication with a B-1 guy who maybe was the guy who put us in touch, who had said that's where we met. 
because yeah. I was at Top Gun during 9-11 as well. And I used to go out to Ellsworth and give a Navy capabilities brief to the uh, B-1 guys out there. Anyway. Cool. So how many hours in the B-1 do you have? Just shy of 3,000 and about uh, 800 of that is combat. Wow. Green ink. Okay. Yeah. Impressive. All right. Well, you're just the right guy then to talk about the B-1 today. Let's get right to it, man. So this thing has quite the history, like you. <laughs> you know, started in what? The late 70s, Carter administration canceled it. Along Absolutely. comes Reagan. He brings it back. It was nuclear. Now it's not. I mean, in broad strokes, how did this thing come to be and what is it designed to do? Absolutely. Sure. So, you know, the, the B-1 has been, I think, for its entire history, some sort of, I can say a red-haired stepchild because I had red hair when I was younger and, you know, <laughs> um, but uh, I'll tell you, it has an interesting history, warts and all. The plane started being designed as a replacement for both the B-52 and the B-58. They wanted something fast, penetrating, large capability aircraft. It came along following the cancel, the XB-70, if you remember that, the Valkyrie. Oh, yeah, the Valkyrie. And, you know, that plane was designed by Rockwell as well. So if you look in a cockpit of an XB-70, there's one at the Air Force Museum in Wright-Pat. You'll see very similar cockpit to a B-1. Also, interestingly very similar cockpit to the original space shuttle because they were all Rockwell International uh, ah. kind of programs. So they wanted a high altitude penetrator. They wanted to go Mach 2 plus. The thought was go high and fast over Soviet defenses and be able to penetrate. But it did get canceled by Carter. There were issues with wondering, uh, you know, whether MiG-31s that were coming online would be able to come up and get the aircraft, et cetera. And they decided to focus on Alcom's air launch cruise missiles versus okay. uh, using the B-1A. Well, it was political fodder, obviously, like you said, between Carter and Reagan, Reagan campaign that our defenses were weak. So we started the B-1 back up. And in that time, we were able to integrate some technology into the aircraft that wasn't in the B-1A. So the inlets were redesigned. The wings were a little bit redesigned. It's a wet wing. The ECM spine was transferred into the wing glove areas and the tail to give it jamming capability. And it also has some inlet guide vanes that are kind of precursor to stealth to give it a very low cross-section off the nose. In fact, if you go beak to beak with a B-1 and an F-16, a B-1 is smaller on radar. So that's another little interesting fact about the wow. B-1 a lot of people don't know. Hmm. So restarted by Reagan, it was meant to be a stopgap bomber. We all know now about the B-2 and the Advanced Technology Bomber Project, but at the time that wasn't really known. Uh, right. And so that's why they end up only building about 100 is because of the costs of them. But the B-1B is now designed to be a low altitude, high speed penetrator. And that's really where the plane loves to fly, quite honestly. It flies uh, with a very high roll rate, very fast down low, very smooth down low, all the way down to 200 feet is no problem for the aircraft. And usually somewhere around 540 knots ground. That's where it really was designed to fly. And it was going to go in, penetrate Soviet defenses, launch what they call SRAMs, which were short range air launch missiles, nuclear missiles in order to fight its way into a target, take out threats with the nuclear missiles, and then hit its priority targets. That's the B-1B as it's designed, as it's produced. And all the planes are built between 1983 and 86. And so there's 100 of these that were made, but what, about 66, I think I read, are still serving or yeah, capacity? Yeah, I think it's about 60 at this point. We had a budgetary thing back in, uh, gosh, I want to say around 2002 timeframe where they decided they wanted to reduce the numbers. And so they cut our two National Guard units and put uh, about 30 planes out into the desert, out into the boneyard. And the thought was they would roll that money that they saved into upgrades to the aircraft. And they did that. The aircraft has gone through a bunch of iterations of, of updates, and it surely has evolved in its capabilities with each one of them. Yeah. I just think it's interesting to skip ahead to variants that you've got a B-1A that was designed for high altitude, like you said, supersonic penetration of a yeah. well-defended airspace. And then roughly the same airframe turned into the B-1B, but now low altitude. So do you know if any of the B-1As were converted or was it too much of a change? Like no. we just had an episode on the Vigilante right. and a lot of the early A-5s were converted to the RA-5C. Nope. The original A model uh, airframes were not used. They actually had to do 
differences in the titanium and where they put them on there, how they strengthen okay. certain areas and lighten other areas. Like I said, they went, it was the first variant was a dry wing. The B1 is actually a wet wing. There's fuel in the, in the wings. And then um, the whole airframe of the nacelles and everything underneath is, is very different. So, okay, cool. Yeah. And then, so is there a particular mission that the B1BE, we'll use that as our definitive uh, sure. model for today's discussion, excels at? I mean, you guys are out of the nuclear role, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So we can talk a little bit on that. You know, the guys all sat alert for the first, you know, 10 or so years of the aircraft. And then in 1995, we had what was called the New START Treaty with Russia. And as a part of that, we had to denuke certify a certain number of our bombers. And the B-1 was the one they chose to do that. This all went in line with the inactivation of SAC. And the B-1 okay. was placed under Air Combat Command with all the fighters. And it went through what was called of its conventional munitions upgrade program. So we don't say the nuclear word in the B-1 at all. And we really were able to shine while being pulled under ACC. Again, that red-haired stepchild kind of analogy compared to all the fighter guys. But actually, there were some great forward-thinking people who integrated us well. And we also learned a lot from them. That's when we started our WIC, our weapons school. That's when, you know, we started doing these combined tactics embedded with fighters and whatnot. And that's something that's amazing about the aircraft is there's not any other bomber out there that's going to go at 0.85 Mach or 510 True or whatever the guys want to use as their planning factor for a giant strike push. So we are right there in the thick of it. And in fact, I've had combat missions that I've led where the Viper guys are asking us to slow down so they can hang with us because they want to conserve <laughs> fuel to get yeah. to a target area very deep into wherever the territory might be. Yeah. Yeah. So the B1B, that's the B1 that is. The B1A was something that was almost a, a technology demonstrator that never got built. I like the fact mm -hmm. that you explain nobody calls it the Lancer, at least not in the community. We're the bone. We're the bone men that fly it. And that's how we like to refer to it. Yeah, for sure. Now, of the different missions, I mean, you guys, I presume, can do close air support. Uh, you can do deep interdiction strikes, different things. Is there a bread and butter mission for you guys now? Absolutely. I mean, the bread and butter mission is going to be strategic attacker interdiction. That's okay. what the aircraft is designed to do. It has the highest payload of all the bombers. Another lesser known fact, it was designed to have to carry as much, if not more, than the B-52 in its original design. When we talk in the language of today's munitions and the JDAM, the 2,000-pound JDAM, the GB-31, mm -hmm. the B-1 carries 24, which is the most of all the bombers. The B-2, wow. I believe, is at 16. And the B-52s, don't quote me on this. I want to say it's at 20 presently. They're also working some internal carry capabilities that they're really going to help them out with right. guided munitions. Okay. We also carry 24 JASM, which is the joint air-to-surface standoff missile, basically a stealth right. cruise missile. So with those, those we're going to do primarily strategic attack and interdiction, either hitting high-value targets deep within infrastructure or interdiction, which is taking the enemy's combat forces off the battlefield before they can engage with friendly forces. Those are our bread-and-butter missions. But you also mentioned CAS, and I'll tell you that since 9-11, that has been the primary thing that the B-1s have done in combat. In fact, wow. I would argue that the B-1s have dropped more weapons and casts than any other platform out there simply because of the numbers of weapons we carry and the mm -hmm. fact that the B-1s were nonstop deployed from 2001 all the way in, until about uh, middle of 2017. Yeah. So lots of casts. It's a different type of cast. I've had this discussion many a time at the weapons school or in the squadron bars or at the O Club at Nellis about whether a bomber can do CAS or not. I've also <laughs> been thanked many a time by people on the ground who appreciate when they're calling in strikes what we can bring to bear yeah. with the B1. So lots of CAS. We do carry laser-guided munitions, laser-updated munitions like the laser JDAM, and then all of the GPS-guided munitions as well. Other right. things that we do that aren't mentioned as much is uh, mining. We have a pretty robust ability to drop mines, and in certain places in the world, that's still a needed thing. The Navy mm -hmm. really wants us to do that. We can't get rid of that mission. <laughs> um, and then there are all the different flavors of mission that don't kind of fit within the ones I've described, the, the arm recce, the armed overwatch, things where you're just basically in the air, ready to 
expend ordnance, whether it be passed by targets, whether it be targeted by another aircraft, whether it be called in by the ground. One of the generals in 2003 during the Operation Iraqi Freedom coined the term. He said, the B-1 is my roving linebacker in the sky. And we kind of <laughs> took akin to that. We liked that. That was a good example of kind of what we did on the field. Yeah. No, I like it. I think what maybe throws people off is when they think of close air support, they might think of like what I used to do in an F-18, which is rage in at you know 200 feet, do a pop. In the pop, I'm looking for the smoke, and then I'm rolling over on my back, and the fax sees me and clears me hot, and then I you know, pull off at 1,000 feet, and I'm gone again. I mean, you right. guys aren't obviously doing stuff like that. You're probably loitering nearby, and then you can get in the basket, release a weapon, and that could be guided either with coordinates or a laser or something along those lines. And the benefit of that, of course, is you guys have so many more weapons and so much more loiter time, I would presume, than we do. Absolutely. But also, but you guys are big, as we'll get to in a moment. But in any close air support mission, you, you need a relatively permissive environment anyway. So, yeah, it makes sense that you guys would be good at that. Absolutely. And permissive is all situation dependent, I will say. We had times where there was a B-1 doing casts over the town of Kobani in Syria, and there's nobody out there to assist us other than our own aircraft. We've got some of the C-2 architecture keeping an eye on us, but if the Syrians wanted to fly one of their planes up and take a look at us. You know, we didn't have a lot of options other than to kind of monitor and retrograde kind of a thing. Mm. Yeah, it is a different form of cast, but the way that you can integrate it is just amazing. My last combat sortie was uh, in Iraq. We were over Ramadi and I was working with two A-10s. And because of the sun and the glint angle, they couldn't see where these guys were holed up in a kind of a, a slit trench. And so we were actually lasing in so they could pick up our laser to line up their gun runs. And then they would acquire the target about three to five seconds before shooting. And as we checked off the A-10 guy goes, I didn't know a B-1 could do that for us. That's amazing. So <laughs> we were pulling our own coordinates and our own sector of the ground and, and dropping on ISIS in their gun positions. So that's um, cool. CAS has definitely evolved. That's for sure. You know, the guy on the ground's CAS has evolved. You know, if you talk yeah. with a JTAC today, he's not looking for the plane anymore. He's not looking for that line unless it's really a situation where that is an issue. A lot of times he's looking in a screen because I'm pushing out my pod footage directly to him and he wants to see exactly what I'm aiming on and he knows it. Right. So, Yeah, that's impressive. Dude, let's move on to looks. Now this yeah. B1, man, it's like a basically a giant fighter. It's single tail, four engine, four crew, and sweep wings. And it's got yeah. some really flowing lines. I mean, that thing's beautiful, I think. Yeah. It is a lifting body. So for those who know the area rule, coke body kind of design, that was the initial basis for it. And then with the variable geometry wings, it's one of the things we kind of joke is very few people get to see the aircraft and it's prettiest with its wings all the way back because mm -hmm. most times they see it on takeoff and landing or taxiing around with the wings out. But um, it does have a, a beautiful lines to it. Small tail, you'll notice, and that's good for reducing drag. But the vertical stabilizer, another unique feature of the B-1, it's splits. And what I mean by that is that in order to help the B-1 roll, the vertical stab will go up on one side and down on the other, basically like a corkscrew, if you will. And mm -hmm. that will help the aircraft roll, especially at higher angles of attack. The aircraft doesn't have ailerons. It just has spoilers. Okay. So yep. you just throw the spoilers up on one side. That increases drag on that wing. That wing drops while the other wing rises. And that's how it rolls. Gotcha. Uh, very quick roll rate. Your listeners can look out there. There's videos online of guys doing double aileron rolls and, and whatnot. Tactical reasons for doing that? Well, probably not for a double, but we do roll the aircraft inverted even down at low level in order to clear underneath us. That's the one hard part about the aircraft is the sight lines. We don't have that high visibility that the guys in the fighters do. So we mm -hmm. have to rely a lot of times on roll and putting the aircraft where we want it in order to see. Yeah. For the uh, wings, if I read correctly, about 15 degree sweep at full forward and about 67 and a half full aft. Sounds a yes. lot like the F-14. Yes. Is that something you guys are manually doing or is that all part yes. of the yeah. flight regime? Oh, you're nope. doing it manually? It's all manually. In the cockpit, it's a uh, stick and throttle configuration. Each pilot, there are two pilots up front, two weapon systems officers in the back. Each pilot has its own stick and own set of throttles on the left. So it's not a shared oh. throttle, you know, okay. bank in the center like you would see in a heavy aircraft. Right. And then each pilot has outboard of them, just below the windowsill, a knob that moves the wings. So you can sweep the wings from either side. 15 and 20 degrees used for takeoff and landing. 
25 degree is used for in route crews at about 0.72 Mach or 420 true for those who want to speak in that. Uh-huh. And then we can go to 45 wing or 55 wing as an employment kind of uh, wing sweep. Gives us uh, a little bit more ability to go faster if we need to. And uh, also gets us closer to that full aft wing position of 67.5. That's the wing position we'll use when we take the aircraft through supersonic or if we're doing any sort of uh, egress maneuver. And then just out of curiosity, so like in my F-18, when we land ashore, we wouldn't just fold the wings for the sake of parking because you lose access to the wingtips. But the F-14, although I knew never flew it, generally they would sweep their wings just to reduce bumping into things and saving room. Of course, we always do that on the flight deck of a carrier. Do you guys sweep the wings when you land uh, for parking or do you generally lean no. them forward? No, you genuinely lean them forward because honestly, the plane will tip. So it'll shift the CG far enough aft that it'll uh, pop a wheelie, as they say. So for your listeners, if they ever went to the Air Force Museum in Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, they'll see a B-1 in there and its wings are swept back in order to fit it in the museum. And that's because it's got a Ford fuel tank full of water to hold it down and the other (laughs) fuel tank's empty and it's tied down. So no, the wings are always uh, out at uh, 15 or 20 degrees on the ground. That's crazy. I never would have thought that. It makes sense, though, because you're taking all that wing and sweeping it aft. And of course, the CG moves when you do that. When the wings are moving in flight, is it noticeable? Do you have to put a little forward or aft stick, depending on which way they're moving? Not really. If you do a full wing sweep, you might, but it's got electric trim and it's very responsive. It has a fuel center gravity management system in it, which is a big way to say that The plane automatically moves fuel forward and aft as you move your wings or as it burns through other fuel or even it sees that you're going to drop a certain amount of weapons upcoming. So if I go and I know that I'm going to drop 48,000 pounds of weapons in about 15 seconds, the aircraft needs to accommodate for that shift and not stall out of the sky by having a a large center of gravity shift so the aircraft mm-hmm. will actually move fuel around and it does it all automatically when it works you train for if it breaks you'd have to do it yourself but by and large right. it does it all automatically and so when you shift the wings it's always keeping that center of gravity where you want it and it's pretty neutral on the trim cool so you talked about the crew of four let's touch on that real quick you got a pilot and a co-pilot i presume what are the duties there and then tell me about the guys in the back so the original crew of four was a, an aircraft commander who would sit in the left seat as a pilot, a co-pilot who would sit in the right seat, a offensive systems officer in the back right who would run the navigation and the radar and all the weapons, and then a defensive systems officer in the back left who would run our defensive suite. He was an electronic warfare trained officer, run all the receivers and jammers. And that was how it was broken down. And everyone would be trained either pilot, OSO, offensive systems officer or DSO defensive systems officer. And then, uh, gosh, it's been probably 20 years now, but they decided to make the guys in the back who went to nav school and then the EO school, and then to the weapons system officer school interchangeable. And so when we fly today, the guys often are flipping a coin to, Hey, do you want to sit O or D to use the lingo (laughs) kind of thing? And honestly, a lot of times it comes down to who gets to drop the bombs who gets to run the targeting pod for them and whatnot. And so I always think it's, it's interesting to me. You'll hear guys go, oh, yeah, you guys have got two navigators. Well, there are a lot more than navigators. They've gone through extensive training. And really, I'm the bus driver a lot of times in order to get the plane where they need it in order to deliver the weapons. Right. It used to be that a pilot being the aircraft commander was always the one in charge of the aircraft in its entirety. You'd have your offensive systems officer telling you, you need to come right to 270 to line up for this weapons release. And you'd have your defensive systems officer saying, no, turn you know, left 180, we have to avoid a threat. And as the aircraft commander, you'd be the one making the smart decision of what to do. Well, we've kind of evolved in our crew concept where even the whistles in the back can be the airborne mission commander or mission lead. The mm-hmm. pilot signs for the aircraft, just like he would for maintenance purposes and whatnot. And, but we train any crew member can go up through the training timeline to be the leader in the aircraft as required. And it works really well together. Yeah. Um, 
I kind of put it as the same as like a basketball or a, a soccer team. There are all these positions mm-hmm. you kind of play, but if you're the right person there to be the leader on the field or take the shot, then that's what you're going to be. Well, plus it doesn't marginalize the guys in the back. It gives them growth opportunities, both professionally and personally, and it allows them to move up in the ranks. And, you know, again, just not say, oh, you're a lesser part of the team. That's good stuff. When one guy is flying, one pilot, the other is what, backing up with fuel or communications or how do you divide the duties up front? Absolutely. So uh, pilot fly, pilot talk usually. And so the other pilot might take a C2 or, you know, traffic control radio. The pilot mm-hmm. flying will have the strike primary up or the air-to-air fight up or whatnot, talking in that way and working any formation comm. The B1s we do do uh, two-ship and four-ship pretty regularly, and we actually plan large strike missions that way. And then the pilot that's not flying is going to be backing up the guys in the back, the weapons, seeing where the threats are another pair of eyes outside is really how that kind of breaks down. Yeah. Good stuff. Wacky, let's move on to armament. And my team has provided me an impressive list here. You've already touched on (laughs) some of them. I mean, you've got general purpose weapons, GPS guided weapons, laser guided weapons, mines, cluster bombs. Although I think those have kind of fallen out lately. You talked about some of the uh, JASM stuff. We've got JSAO as well. looks like. Right. Grief, man. Is there anything this thing doesn't carry? I guess nukes anymore, but it's got that, a lot that, of stuff. That's the big one is no longer nukes. And you yeah. know, for a while there, after they got rid of the nukes, all it was was conventional Mark 82s. And then they added the Mark 62 quick strike mine, which is just that Mark 82 bomb body converted with a mine kit and painted gold. Then they went on to 2,000 pound munitions. They figured that the rotary launchers that they had used for the nuclear weapons, well, let's hang heavier weapons on there and see what happens. And so we went to Mark 84, 2,000 pound unguided, Mark 65 mines. You mentioned clusters. We still train to them. Yeah, they're not in favor, but there are places in the world and there are instances where those may be the weapons that we're going to need to use. Now, mm-hmm. we tend to drop the WIC mid version or the wind corrected munitions dispenser version, which basically puts an INS navigation kit on the back of that cluster bomb in order to help give it some guidance towards a target. Of those clusters, there's three variants. The unguided are the CBU-87, the guided, the 103, that's the uh, combined effects munition. So a bunch of little bomblets come out of that one. There's the CBU-89 or the CBU-104 is the guided version. That is a area denial mine. So it has anti-tank and anti-personnel mines. And then there's the CBU-97 or the CBU-105, which is the sensor-fused weapon. I encourage everyone to Google a video of the CBU-105. The person who invented this, I've heard him described multiple ways, but just a mad genius. This weapon (laughs) sends out these 10 submunitions. They fall. Their radar altimeter fires off. They shoot a rocket up and spin. They throw four skeet, as they're called, little hockey pucks out in four different directions with a sensor looking for a hot engine of a tank or an airplane or whatever else. Then it fires and it fires a shape charge weapon right through the engine of the target. Amazing, amazing, yeah. crazy weapon. So those are your clusters. Then okay. you go into satellite guided munitions. JDAM has really been our bread and butter weapon. And it's becoming the bread and butter weapon of many an aircraft. Yes. Um, so GBU-31 was the start with the 2,000 pound. Now there's you know GBU-32s. We don't carry those as of yet, the 1,000 pounders. GBU-38s is the 500-pounders, and plenty of those, they just basically, you tell the weapon where you are, where it is, it goes out, acquires satellites, does some comparisons to figure out how accurate you were and where you want the bomb, guides on into the coordinates you gave it. But as soon as it goes, the weapon is going to go to where you told it to, and that's it. Mm -hmm. So they got smart, and they said, you know what? We have these laser-guided munitions like the GBU-10, the 12, the 16, the 24. Why can't we do that with that JDAM? So instead of doing like your laser-guided munition where it follows the laser all the way in until it hits, the laser JDAM or the GBU-54 takes the best of the GBU-38 and puts a laser sensor on there and it goes and when it sees a laser hit a target, it updates where it's going to go. So things (laughs) that you might be used to from, from the old school days of beware of podium effect or watching where your laser goes or losing uh, sight of the laser. This bomb, 
If it loses sight of the laser, it goes, well, I'm going to go where the last place you told me was. And if it never right. acquires a laser, it's going to go to the coordinates we gave it. So another level of both precision and accuracy. And then you mentioned JSAL. We were called to carry it, but uh, at present we do not. And then JASM. JASM is becoming the standoff weapon of choice. It is a very long-range air-to-surface missile that is low observable. And by carrying 24 of these, you can actually get to a lot of targets and they never see the missile coming in. So it, yeah. it allows us in that contested degraded environment in order to what we call roll back the IADs, roll back yeah, yeah. the integrated air defense system. And then there's one that's out there now that I think the Navy's really excited about. In fact, they gave the B-1 community a lot of their money to get this integrated and tested. And that's the really? long range anti-ship missile. So now we take that JASM LO bomb body, but we have a seeker out there that goes out and hunts for ships and it hunts Hmm. very well for specific ships and whatnot. And having 24 of those to be able to go out there, find the ship and be able to track to get right where you want to on the ship with your weapon is an amazing capability as well. So that's what really keeps us in that maritime fight. Okay. How about small diameter bomb? So we don't currently field its small diameter bomb. They've looked at doing the racks for them. And depending on what rack configuration, you're talking anywhere from 96 to 144 SDBs. That's nice. a lot of mission planning. I'll tell you what. <laughs> yeah. So it hasn't made it very high on the wants list in the B1 world because those weapons are better used on other platforms. And just the sheer number of JDAM that we can carry, 24 JDAM, can solve most tactical problems that exist on the ground. We do like the idea of the standoff capability of the SDB, and that might be out there for a future integration. We also yeah. have done everything but final flight testing on GBU-12 and other LGB class munitions. But again, it's all up to the combatant commanders to say what they want in their fight and what they might need, and it hasn't really risen to the top. Well, it already sounds like you have a pretty impressive arsenal available to you for a lot of different missions anyway. Right. Are these all internally carried or do you carry anything externally? Everything today is internally carried. The B1 has three weapons bays. Each one of those weapons bays can be set up how you want it. Primarily, we either use a rack system that carries either 28 500-pound class munitions or 10,000-pound class munitions or a rotary launcher that carries eight 2,000 pound munitions. Mm -hmm. So depending on what's needed in the scenario, I could have two bays of 2,000 pound JDAM or 16 JDAM and then have another bay that had GBU-38 in it or that had cluster bombs in it, etc. You can mix and match as needed for the loadout. Our maintainers are pretty good at making those swaps. It's a pain sometimes to change the actual racks, but you tend to come up with a standard configuration all internal. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. Now you asked about external. The B-1 was originally designed to have the ability to put those SRAM that I talked about externally as well. And so there are hard points on the B-1 that you can't really see if they're flush with the surface. Well, we used one of those in order to get us the sniper targeting pod. So the sniper targeting pod's pretty much the best targeting pod that's currently being used by all of our aluminum fighters and bombers. And so we have that on a pylon. That pylon is also capable of of holding a 5,000-pound munition and the points are there to put one on the other side. So there's been talk about if we wanted to get into something bigger like 
GBU, I want to say it's GBU 28 is the 5,000 pound one. There's the ability to put that on the aircraft, but at, at present, we're not funded to do that. Well, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And the people holding the purse strings have to be careful to not spread everything too thin. Hey, everyone. I just want to take a quick break from the interview to remind you that with the holidays coming, if you are shopping for an aviation enthusiast, or more likely, a loved one is shopping for you, well, send them over to the fighterpilotpodcast.com where they can find great holiday ideas on our shop page. From books to wine to military aviation apparel and household decor, there's something for everyone on the Fighter Pilot Podcast shop page and our storefronts with Cafe Press and Society6. Or if you're shopping on Amazon this season, no matter what you're purchasing, if you click through the affiliate link on our shop page, your purchases will cost no more, but Amazon provides us a small portion of each purchase. And if you're in the giving mood this season, would you kindly consider supporting the show on our Patreon page? Not only will you keep your favorite podcast flying high, but in the process, you gain access to early episodes, exclusive content, and merchandise, and at the highest tiers, a 30-minute debrief one-on-one with either me or a past show guest. Thanks so much, and happy holidays from your friends at BVR Productions. Okay, now back to the show. As far as the loading goes, just very quickly, I'm guessing it's, you got a whole department, uh, we would call them AOs in the Navy world. I don't know what you call them, but they're probably all adapted this. They've got the ground equipment and everything's modular, right? They can pull up underneath and put something right up into these bomb bays. Indeed. Yeah. And in 2003, it was just amazing to see how fast they could reload a full B1. They're swinging the bombs around, getting them up underneath their get them into a station, rotate the station, get the next weapon in kind of a thing. So yeah. uh, we've got ammo and MUNs, people who build the bombs, people who load the bombs. And, gotcha. uh, How about, you know, Hollywood never pays tribute to the amount of work that goes in before a flight. In fact, a lot of movies are like, okay, we got to go, you know, and everybody jumps in and takes off and boom, off they go. I mean, if you're carrying precision weapons, especially the numbers you're carrying, I have to think there's a lot of pre-strike planning going on. And I don't want to necessarily bog down too much, but is that something you guys are doing the day before, right before someone's doing it for you? I mean, how involved is some of the planning? I know it depends on the mission, but just thinking about the weapons, is it pretty detailed? It is very detailed. And that mm. is most of what our training is during peacetime or at home is teaching all of the air crew how to plan very complex strike missions, very complex targeting packages with priorities of target and sorts. You know, we talk about 24 weapons, but each one of those weapons can have a different fusing option. It right. can have a different bomb body, a penetrator versus a non penetrator. So it can create a very complex solution to work through and we do train to that real world when you're doing combat missions the ato or the air tasking order will drop for the following day and you break that down to see what you're tasked with and there's a team in your mission planning cell that are building the whole strike mission and building all the products and cutting the tapes and everything for that while the air crew who's going to fly the mission are in crew rest or sleeping and that is the standard kind of rotation but what i'll share with you is in Operation Iraqi Freedom, the fights against ISIS, later on fights in, in Afghanistan. The idea of an air tasking order where we say, hey, and you know, tomorrow we're all going to go out and do this thing, and then the next day we're going to hit these targets, it goes right out the window because the master target list is so dynamic and constantly changing that very often the aircraft will go and have a couple of those kind of strike missions where they're planned. You go and you hit what you need to, and then it quickly evolves into take off with your 24 weapons you're going to get past time sensitive targeting in flight or on your way into country and now the air crew and the aircraft are having to load all that stuff come up with a plan on the fly of how to deliver their weapons um <laughs> i'll tell you you know night one of iraqi freedom in 2003 it was a four ship i was number three we had 96 targets they changed while we were getting our briefing they changed while we were getting the engines started and doing our pre-flight checks and right before we took off we had one of the weapons officers in our mission planning cell come up with just a, a spreadsheet of updated info for us to go hey just got this from the KOC, the combined air operations center mm -hmm. you need to go in and change your weapons loadout and, and what you're striking again and as we're flying through saudi arabia up into iraq we're jamming all these targets in and 
redispersing them across our foreship. So it can be really dynamic and it can be a lot of work. We train to it day to day as if we're just in a planning cell, but we have the capability to do it real time in the aircraft. Gotcha. And that makes sense. I mean, and when it comes right down to it, we're out there to serve somebody. And if their needs change on a dynamic battlefield, which is pretty common these days, then we have to be able to do that. So fair enough. And yeah, I'm with you, you know, in training, or I should say in peacetime, you spend so much time training for all these different things. And, and I guess the idea is in having the information readily available in your head, getting back to your football analogy, you know, it's like you step up to the snap and you can look and see what the defense is doing and call a quick audible if you're good enough. So sounds like yeah. you guys are able to do that. All right, dude, let's talk performance. So this thing's got the swing wings we talked about. It's basically got four F-16s strapped under its wings, as I understand it. Pretty much the same engine, including the same afterburners. Yeah, engine, that's yeah. awesome. So the B-1A was supposed to be Mach 2 capable. Uh, you guys are a bit less. What's the fastest you've ever seen in one of these things, both Mach and True? So I've been Mach 1.27 wow. in the B-1 on a combat sortie. That was haul in the mail. Normally, you know, peacetime, we don't go supersonic just because of the effects it has and where we're sure. flying the aircraft and whatnot. Often when we do training up at the Nellis test and training range is a good opportunity for guys who haven't been supersonic to be one to do that. And it's really fun to watch the red air try and keep up with us when we do that. Um, <laughs> and that's really what it's for. It's to dash. It's to get somewhere right. fast because someone on the ground needs our help immediately, or it's to get us away from a threat fast. Right. And then uh, down low, we have some uh, dynamic pressure limits on the wings, so we tend to not go supersonic down on the deck. Uh, okay. So we try and keep it at around 0.95 Mach when we're down low. That tends to be fast enough as well against most adversaries. Normal performance, we're flying anywhere between 0.72 and about 0.9 in order to do our combat missions. Excellent. How high have you been in one? I like to joke that I've been above 30,000 feet less than five times. So <laughs> it was designed for low. So it doesn't yeah. have one of these high lift wings. You know, that which makes us go fast kind of limits how high we can get up as well. Right. You know, the B1A was meant to go much, much higher just because it was a different That's wing. Right. But we tend to stay, you know, somewhere in the 20s usually. Uh, we might bring it a little bit lower in order to get a better uh, look in our targeting pod when we're in the wheel. But usually in the 20s is where we tend to hang out. How many Gs can you pull or have you pulled in it? Combat G limit is three Gs. <laughs> I've pulled to that limit. I might have pulled a little bit over that once and <laughs> had to go buy a six-pack or two for the maintainers and help them check yep. panels. But yep. uh, that's probably one of the hardest things in the aircraft. It's such a long aircraft with that spine and the stress loads that are on there is that we can't G load it up without doing damage to the aircraft. And it will very easily pull. There's nothing to stop you. Uh, oh, wow. when, you, when you start doing low altitude defensive maneuvers with young guys in the aircraft, you have to be very careful to watch how they do their pulls, you know, so we don't, oh, we over G'd and now we're going home, you know, yeah. kind of a thing. Yeah. So three G's about the limit, big turn okay. radius at the high speeds and the low G's. That's one of our big limitations. Gotcha. And then we don't normally ask this one, but I'll ask you anyway, what's the longest mission you've ever had? What's the longest time in the seat? 27 hours. Oh my so. gosh. That was going from uh, South Dakota all the way to uh, Diego Garcia in the middle of the Indian Ocean. <laughs> I think we Man. had four air refuelings. For whatever reason, we took off no moon at eight o'clock at night. And uh -huh. for the next 20 hours straight, it was dark out as we were chasing the moon, as it were, the darkness, yeah. as it were. And you have to keep your mind occupied in that. It, it oh, takes yeah. a long, long time. We do have four ejection seats. They're ACES 2 ejection seats, just like in a fighter. You can get out and kind of stand a little bit in between the two pilots and a little bit aft or in between the, the two whizzos in the back. There's not a lot of room. Get out, stretch kind of a thing, and then, you know, get back in your seat. So, um, yeah, 27 hours is a long one. My longest combat sortie was just over 16 hours. There are guys who have 20-plus uh, hour combat sorties, and usually we got limited on that by leadership saying, I appreciate what you're doing, guys, but at a certain point, <laughs> fatigue's going to set home. Bring the aircraft back, please. Yeah. So. In our current capacity in the airlines, uh, the FAA would about vomit if they heard something like that. But uh, that's impressive. Uh, do you guys have a little uh, relief area or is it just a lot of piddle packs? There is a relief area, uh, a small <laughs> little um, head that folds up. And without getting into too graphic detail, but you know, maybe your listeners want to know the interesting things that are out there. I always set the bet with my crew. Number one only, 
And if anyone does more than number one, they're buying uh, pizzas and beer if it is available when we land. So, uh, <laughs> and knock on wood, that was never a problem. So, oh um, my gosh, yeah. even in 27 hours, that was impressive. Yeah, 27 hours, indeed. Because in that small environment, uh, it's going to be very clear to everybody if you go beyond number one, I'm guessing. Yes, it is. Okay. Well, let's leave it at that. All right, man. How about some strengths of the aircraft? What were some things you really loved about it? The biggest thing I think about when I think about the B-1, when I want to tell people what it does, is its speed, which we've talked about. Speed Mm -hmm. compresses the battle space immensely, and seconds matter. Oh, yeah. It's lethality. It is the heaviest bomber that we own. It can put more precision munitions down than anything else out there. And then it's persistence. The other part of it that is really important is being able to stay on the battlefield when you're following a special forces team that's, you know, in the hinterlands with no one else around them. I'm able to stay over top of them for hours on end versus some of the fast movers have to come in and they've got 30 minutes of playtime to kind of give a weapon if they need it. And then they're they're bingoed out. So persistence is key. We've also, you know, done a lot of things where we're watching and waiting for something to happen in order to, you know, meet a commander's, you know, desires, you know, a a meeting that's supposed to take place or movement of certain munitions or whatever. And that's where that persistence really helps. And so when I think about the B-1, those are the big things that I really want to footstomp is how fast it is, its lethality and its persistence. Mm -hmm. How about weaknesses that you're willing to admit? I mean, if you had a blank check, is there anything you would have said, darn it, they should have fixed this long ago? Forward firing ordinance. I mean, this is the fighter podcast, right? I have an air-to-air radar. I have an air-to-air radar uh, without getting into too much of the details and the specifics. It has an interleave search and track, just like a lot of our fighters do. The problem is, is that I can't take this aircraft to the merge, uh, you know, unless I'm going to go for a blow-through and hope that someone right. disrespects me so much that they give me an angle. And it's happened before for fun at flag exercises, but by and large, yeah. you know, I have no turn capability and I got no forward firing ordinance. And those are the two weakest things about the B1. But <laughs> rightfully people go, but you're a bomber. Yeah, yeah. you're right. You, I want all the fighters to go out there, mix it up, clear the airspace so I can come on in and do my job. And then that's what we teach the young guys is, look, your job is to put the ordinance on target the first time. So all mm-hmm. those guys don't have to fight their way to clear the target area for you again the next day. But, you know, it's been joked about, you know, in a lot of places in the world, it it becomes a numbers game. And how can I get more AMRAAM? How can I get more air-to-air missiles in the fight? We raise our hand and go, load them up on my plane. You know, (laughs) we'll launch them, you target them. You know, it's just math to determine when I need to turn around, but we could help in that regard. But that's kind of the biggest joke. Give me forward firing ordinance. Well, and it's actually fortuitous for you to say it's math on when to turn around because I'm working with a friend of mine who used to be our air-to-air mission planning SME at Top Gun, and we're looking to do an episode exactly on that point because it comes down to what do we know about our own capabilities in the enemy because that dictates when you fire, when you turn, and et cetera. So we'll get to that on another one. All right, man, let's talk notoriety. Now, where would the listener have seen or heard about the B-1, either in the news, in Hollywood? Where has it made its mark? Well, you know, in a couple places, obviously we talked about the politics and the money of it. I think that there's a couple things out there that, well, let's talk combat. The B-1s sh- were the first people to shoot the JASM. They shot them into uh, Syria to take out, I believe it was like a chemical weapons type facility. That happened a couple years ago, I want to say in 2017-ish. So that was the most recent big splashy thing that the B-1s had made the news on. Hollywood. The classic, of course, is Real Genius. The B-1 is the plane that they put the laser on and the laser shoots the guy's house and turns the corn into popcorn, popcorn right? <laughs> you see that a bunch. Uh, uh, the B-1 was, I think it was featured in one of Transformers movies once. Of course, kind every of aircraft has. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, so the one thing that for good or for bad, it kind of bums us out sometimes for those in the in the B-1 world is we are not as visible a bomber as, as some of our, our other bomber brethren. We're not that iconic B-52 that's in the sky with the smoke trails that you see. And when someone looks up, goes, uh-oh. Yeah. We're not that unique, amazing-looking airfoil of the B-2, that stealth bomber kind of a thing. We're fast. We tend to fly low. And we're not often seen in the sky as much. But uh, we're definitely there. The B-1 yeah. has been that workhorse, if you will, of the bomber fleet for the past, gosh, 17 years now. 
Well, and there's something to be said for being the unsung heroes because not everybody can enjoy the spotlight or share it. But I do appreciate you saying those two because the B-52 was last week and the B-2 is next week here on Bomber Month. So uh, everybody will get a chance to uh, catch up on all those aircraft. But there's one more place that I can think of where it's sort of, quote, made the news, at least for those of us who follow military aviation. And that was in 2018. There was a pretty epic story about an ejection seat failure. Do you know anything about that? I know a lot about it, actually. Yeah, here's what happened. The training squadron, what you might call the RAG, mm-hmm. uh, they have relatively new student pilot, relatively new student WISO, two instructors, and they're doing a two-ship low level down okay. uh, kind of along the Texas-Mexico border, some nice terrain where we do that. The squadron commander is in the number two. And one of his instructors is in the uh, lead aircraft. And as he's flying along, he looks over and he sees something pop out the side of one of the engine nacelles and sees flames shooting out. He calls to the lead aircraft, hey, you know, Hawk 8-1, you're on fire. And they say, yeah, we know, we're climbing. And they climb up and they run through boldface procedures. You know, with fire, you got to shut down engines, mm-hmm. dump agent in, hope that the light goes out. And they do all this as they're climbing to what we call our min safe altitude, basically an altitude at which they can hold that altitude and they won't hit any terrain. We always climb to that altitude first. So that way I can take my head into the cockpit to deal with the system issue. And so as they do that, they go through the whole procedures and the fire doesn't go out. Our boldface and our procedures are pretty clear that if you can't get that fire out and that plane's burning, you need to eject. I think that's common to most aircraft, by the way. (laughs) I I would think so as well, right? Yeah. Now there's two factors that kind of come into play here. About two years prior to that, maybe a little bit more, We lost a B-1 up in South Dakota where they had a fire issue and it was a fuel pipe that had cracked and it ends up blowing the wing off the aircraft and the guys eject. One of the guys got hurt pretty bad in the ejection, but they all lived and they were down low and you had to make that decision quick. So that's in the back of most crew guys' minds when you see things like this is, I got to get out of this plane. The flip side on that though, is that if you get to that min safe altitude and you have a controllable aircraft you don't want to do the automatic ejection sequence where it goes for as fast as possible. You mm-hmm. really want to space the seats out in order to make sure that there's no man-to-man interaction, the hatch doesn't hit each other kind of a thing. And it's very, very low probability it can happen, but we also train to, if you've got a flyable aircraft, we're going to eject, and we're going to eject the offensive systems officer first, then the defensive systems officer, then the co-pilot, then the aircraft commander. That's right. That he goes last. So that's mm-hmm. what they decide to do. And the kid that has to pull the ejection handles to start all off is like his second flight in the aircraft. Oh, man. And he gets there, gets in a position, pulls the handles, his hatch blows, his seat retracts, and nothing happens. And you wait, you wait, and then he looks over to his instructor, and his instructor's going, oh, my God, he didn't eject. What the heck's going on? Now their calculus completely changes, right? Right. Dead to rights, those other three guys could have ejected and said, well, his seat didn't work, but I got to get out of this plane, make sure my seat works. But the pilot said, I'm still flying. I still got a flyable bird. I'm going to fly with this and try and get it somewhere. And maybe, you know, these indications, the fire will go out. And they talk and they do that. And that aircraft continues to burn for, you know, about five to seven minutes as their flight lead now starts leading them towards Midland. And the fire and the smoke that is seen by the other craft basically goes out right before they land. And they land on the runway get out of the jet, save the guy's seat and everything. They're able to recover that aircraft and the guy whose seat didn't go. Um, And so, I mean, it's bravery, I think. It's a pretty good way to say it. It highlights the mentality and the culture of the B-1 community is if I've got a flyable plane, Jello, I'm going to fly it the last minute I can if I can, Mm -hmm. you know, help out someone else on that crew kind of a thing. And that's what these guys did, you know, and they actually had the leader of Global Strike Command come out and, and give them peacetime dfcs for that you know and that's kind of a rare thing to get but i think well deserved well now you're going to want to know what happened and why it happened and i can tell you that as well sure ejection seats have a bunch of short and long mild detonating cord Mm -hmm. basically explosive train that goes through when you pull the handles in order to do everything it needs to do to shoot the seat off and for whatever reason on the b1's aces 2 they use an external tubing made of aluminum instead of silver, like is in some of the other aircraft that use these seats, the F-16, the F-15, and whatnot. One of these aluminum tubes was getting crimped in the wrong spot, 
and uh, it was breaking the detonating cord chain just enough that it gapped, and when it fired, it didn't go. Wow. And so it's one of those one in a million things, and they went, yeah. and they said, well, let's start checking the seats and the lots, and then they found that there were issues across a couple lots, and as far as I understand it, it was traced back to just one gentleman in the manufacturing nothing purposeful just he was not following the spec as it was supposed to be but in a way that he thought it was and he was over crimping these lines and so we ended up having to replace all the lines across all the b1s in order to get them flyable again and that was a tough time for the b1 because we had guys in the middle east flying combat missions mm -hmm. and you know to know that you don't have a seat in case someone shoots at you because there's still a man pad threat out there there's still yeah. you know the possibility something goes wrong or you're out over the water somewhere where you can't make it to a piece of concrete kind of a thing. And mm -hmm. so um, we had to work through all that, but it's been resolved. It's been fixed. It's been remanufactured. I think that the leadership involved really took the crew's inputs to heart. There were some amazing crew that stepped up and said, you know what? I know that the seats are unreliable, but in peacetime in the States, I'm going to keep flying these for a bit until they get them fixed because we got to keep the mission going and we got to keep people trained. So, right. um, it was a dynamic time for our community. I'd forgotten about that one. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I guess the good news in this and the happy ending is that they actually saved an airplane that otherwise they would have failed out of. And I certainly hope nobody's considering changing the procedures because if you've got a fire you can't put out, like I said earlier, it's almost immaterial what kind of airplane it is. You're going to hop out of it. Right. I think the other thing I'm thinking is I don't mean to take away from the bravery of the crew, but I would certainly hope that that's what they would do. I mean, this is the military. We live together and die together. And if the other three dudes like, well, sorry, dude, we're out of here, you know, bailed. I don't know how they could live with themselves. So I obviously agree with that decision as much yeah. as it would suck, you know? Yeah. Well, we had a, an unnamed gentleman came to speak with us and he was an engineering type that worked on the seat. And I remember this clearly because his perspective was different than the one that you just shared and the one that I think about, where he basically said something along the lines of, well, you know, the other three guys had purposely good seats and they could have used them. And I said, sir, clearly you don't fly this aircraft or integrate with these ladies and gentlemen. That's yeah. not how we operate. And we're going to fight to bring our crew back every time. And that's how we integrate. It's a, in a lot of ways, I've heard people say before, imagine you take your four ship and you cram it all into one cockpit. Those are the other three people you rely on in a formation. It's the same mm -hmm. thing in that air crew, in that cockpit. I cannot do my job without the other three people. And I put my life in their hands and they in mine. That's right. Well, and that is the profession of arms. I mean, if you're not at peace with that when you join, then you're in the wrong business because nobody wants it, but you may have to make that ultimate sacrifice. And sometimes you do it together. So, ugh, dude, heavy stuff, man. Very good. Hey, Wacky, uh, you know, we get to that point in every episode where I think, gosh, we could just keep going on and on. But I think we've covered most the relevant stuff that I had on the outline for you. What did we miss on the Rockwell B1 Lancer today that you think the listener should know about? And yeah. again, I know there's plenty, but just big picture stuff. So the future of the aircraft, I don't think we've okay. talked about. Yeah, there um, go. I'm going to use your platform to make a pitch, basically, Dude. because the Air Force has put out a bomber roadmap. And in that bomber roadmap, there's a new bomber coming on, the B-21 Raider. And in order uh, to pay for it, in order to make space, they're going to get rid of some bombers. And they're going to get rid of the B-1 and the B-2 is their game plan. And they're going to keep the B-52 because of its unique capabilities that it has that are, are continuing to be needed. This is supposed to happen, you know, in five to 10 years. But if history is a guide, we never bring a new platform on an original design timeframe. And I definitely see there's a need for the B-1 to continue for a while. And uh, there's been a lot of really smart think tanks in this realm talking about, hey, we should not reduce our number of bombers because, again, it's all just math. And there are target sets out there that require it. There's locations on the planet where nothing else can get there but a B-1. If we've got, say, you know, guys on the ground in the middle of the African continent, I can't get a fighter out there without having tanker support, but I could oh, yeah. get a B-1 there to do a cast type thing. There's still a need for the aircraft. And yeah, the ejection seat thing was a setback, but it needs to be properly maintained. It needs to have adequate support. We need to keep training the air crew until such time that there is a suitable replacement bomber that we can flow all those aircraft and maintainers over to. We'll see where then, it goes. Yeah. Uh, they say five to 10 years. I think you'll see the B-1 around until probably 2045. I know metal fatigue wise, that's its useful life. So we'll see where it goes. 
Well, I'm surprised the Navy's not jumping up and down asking to keep you guys around as much as you do for us between the mining and the anti-ship stuff. In fact, I read an interesting article. I want to say it was in the Naval Institute proceedings. I forget where. Yep. That suggested that the Navy should take them over uh, yep. and kind of return to the World War II era where they had Navy bombers. One of the authors of that article, it was written by both a Navy guy and an Air Force guy. The Air Force guy mm-hmm. is a guy named Raw Hobbs, who's a weapons school graduate and a really sharp dude and basically a great little kind of shot across the bow, if you will, to big Air Force to go, hey, this still has mission capability. And there are other services that operate planes. Maybe they could use it. You know, so <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Well, if we can find the article, we'll uh, put a link uh, in the show notes. But all right, man, well, that's the future of the airplane. What's the future for Wacky? Flying uh, your friends and family around the country, I guess. Uh, <laughs> it was a great time uh, in the military, but you know, everyone kind of hits that decision point in their life, and their career. I've got a uh, five-year-old little boy, and I mm-hmm. want to spend as much time as I can with him. I spent the first year of his life over in the Middle East and whatnot, and just an opportunity to retire and, and continue flying. I love flying for the airline, to be honest with you. It's fun to, to swap stories with all the people who fly and meet all the people and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. And it gives me a lot of family time. It also opened up the door for my wife's career. We met through the military. She's a JAG and oh, then cool. a civilian lawyer. She's followed me around for a decade. So now we'll follow her around and see where her career takes her. (laughs) Well, I don't think anyone can claim you haven't done your part. I mean, 22 years, almost 3000 hours in the B1 man, you're a rock star. So thanks for that. So before we get to our very last question, which is your call sign, I have to ask you this, what is it with the air force that doesn't like the names of their aircraft? So we got the F-16 fighting Falcon, AK Viper. We've got the A-10 Thunderbolt two, the Warthog. And now we've got the B-1 Lancer. How did someone come up with bone for the B-1? Well, if you write out the word one and you put that behind a B, it'll say bone. So B-O-N-E, B1 bone. <laughs> Evidently, uh, you know, that I don't know where it came from. It's older than me, but mm-hmm. uh, that's where it is. Now, why the Air Force does that, you know, it's the same reason why I have a first name and I've also got a call sign. We give endearing yeah. names to the things that we love and the things that, that carry us around. So, gosh, I don't even know what the B-52's original you know, strato fortress. Yeah, strato fortress, but no one calls it that. No, you know, it's the buff. The B two doesn't go by the spirit. You know, maybe they do. I don't know. But I think that <laughs> it's kind of interesting that way. And you'll see that you know every plane's going to have their own kind of nickname that's kind of external to what the powers that yeah. we vote on. Yeah, that's true. And that's a good point is we tend to like endearing terms. I'm sure people who have dogs have nicknames for their dogs too, et cetera. So, right. All right, man. I'm feeling pretty sheepish though. I never thought of B-O-N-E. That's uh, duh. All right. Good one. How about you, Chris Wachter? How did someone come up with Wacky? Ha! <laughs> I'll tell you this much. Wacky was not my first call sign. <laughs> okay. My first call sign was Tourette's because I swore a lot and talked with my hands. But that is not the most politically correct uh, call sign. And and after the Saddam strike that I led, I kind of got the raised eyebrow about maybe we shouldn't be telling you know people this is your call sign. And and I get it; it was given to me. I kind of a thing, but I don't want anyone to take offense that a condition that people can't uh, or maybe right. born with or whatever. Like I'm making fun of it or something, which I surely wasn't. Right. So gotcha. we had a giant reattack. I had to buy a lot of beer and. It all came down to wacky is just a, a play off my last name and it kind of fit with the previous kind of call sign. I've always kind of done things just a little bit differently, always kind of pushed the limit and the edge to see where it was and wacky it is. It's I've had people tell me it's an unfortunate call sign. I'm over it. I don't care. When I hear my first name in my new profession, I sometimes do a double take because as <laughs> you know, you get so um Yeah ensconced in your call sign that, you know, hearing your real name, you think your mother's in the room or something. Yeah. Yeah. For particularly the young people out there who want to do what we've done, you better get used to whatever call sign is imbued on you because if you resist it, as people have heard on the show before, it just gets worse. So you you learn to love it and you just move on. And I can see where wacky out of your last name, that kind of makes sense. So yeah. Cool, dude. Well, wacky, I think you well represented the B1 bone, we'll say. That was a lot of fun, man. I just want to thank you for your time, for your service. And uh, what else you got for us? Nothing. I really appreciate the uh, opportunity and uh, look forward to hearing uh, what the rest of my bomber brethren have to say. Thanks for including us on the the Fighter Pilot Podcast and, you know, maybe branch out to talk with the mobility bubbas and the special ops community 
there's uh, amazing aviators out there with amazing stories. And uh, thanks for having this platform to get it out there. And for uh, anyone who's thinking of getting into aviation, just go for it. You know, it was a dream of mine as a young kid, and I just kept working towards it. And I don't regret a day or a minute of it. There you go. That's as good as it gets. Let's wrap it up on that note. Thanks again, Wacky. We'll see you. All right. Have a good one. Cheers. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the host and our guests and do not represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.